Well, I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5 and verse 12. Luke chapter 5, verse 12, you'll find that on page 861 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to just take that Pew Bible in the rack in front of you as our gift to you today. So we now come to hear from God. It's been a good day, hasn't it? Amen. It's been what a wonderful day to be with you, worshiping our Lord. Uh, choir, by the way, I thank you for ministering to us once again as you do every week. What a, what a beautiful and powerful reminder of our God. And uh, we so much appreciate your ministry. And it was exciting to see all the graduates and um, have the Patrick Henry students here. We know this will be our last Sunday with you. And we pray that God's hand will be upon you this summer. Uh, for many of you, we hope to see you in the fall again as you return to school. And many of you others, some that we met this morning and others, uh, are going off and, and continuing to follow the Lord. And God's speed to you. May He continue to bless you and use you for His glory and for Christ's kingdom. It's been a good day to rejoice and to celebrate. In fact, even looking at those pictures, that was fun to see all the babies. Uh, my favorite picture, however, was of Mr. Sweeney, I must say. Um, <laughs> I don't know where you are, Craig, but uh, I think it's time to bring back the beard. So um, that was fantastic. Luke chapter 5 and verse 12. Please hear now the word of God. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Our Father, we're thankful for today and this opportunity to be here with your people. We're thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful that our Lord is alive today. That he who has been crucified for our sin has risen from the dead and reigns from heaven and will return for his people one day. We gather today, Lord, because we are yours. We have been bought by your blood. And we come now humbly before you and ask you to teach us through your word and by your spirit that we may know you more and follow you more faithfully, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Though it's officially outlawed in many parts of India, today the caste system continues where in these more rural parts of this second most populated nation in the world, one's social status is determined by their birth. Because of the Hindu belief in reincarnation and karma, if you live a good life, you will be reincarnated into a higher caste. But if you live a bad life, an evil life, you will return in a lower caste. The lowest caste in the Hindu system is the Dalit caste, also called the untouchables. Today there are about 130 million people living in this caste. 
National Geographic writes of the untouchables, saying that they are considered too impure, too polluted to rank as worthy beings. They are shunned, insulted, banned from temples and higher caste homes, made to eat and drink from separate utensils in public places, and in extreme but not uncommon cases are burned, lynched, and gunned down. The Hindu religion believes that those who are in this caste deserve it. They must have therefore lived a terrible life to be returned, reincarnated in this new life into this caste. And and therefore, they, they deserve whatever they get. They're considered untouchable by those outside their caste, and therefore they are compelled to work in, to any work that involves physical contact with blood, excrement, and other bodily defilements. Untouchables cremate the dead, clean latrines, cut umbilical cords, remove dead animals from the roads, tan hides, and sweep gutters. Well, I mention this system because it's not unlike the system in which Jesus lived. It's not unlike the system in which the Jews had incorporated at this time. They had their caste system too. They had people that they looked upon as being cursed by God. People that that were uh, um, apart from them. They were, if you will, untouchable, whether they be tax collectors or the sexually deviant or the, the disabled or the diseased or the Samaritans. And yet, of all the castes in which they had, the, the truly untouchables were the lepers. And yet, and when we come to this passage in God's Word, that's exactly who we see standing there before Jesus, a, a, a leper, as we see that Christ has come to love the unlovable, to touch the untouchable. But we see more than that in this story. This is just not a story of the power of Jesus or the compassion and authority of Jesus. It is a, a, a story about the mission of Jesus. As we see that His mission is not simply to heal our infirmities, but it is to make us clean. In fact, you won't find the word heal once in this story, but repeatedly what we see is a desire to be cleansed cleaning, to be fit before society and God. This is really a a story of how Jesus makes us fit before his Father. In fact, leprosy throughout the Bible, most famously in Isaiah chapter 1, is used as a metaphor for sin. Leprosy, like sin, starts small, slowly progresses until it brings ultimate ruin and uncleanness. And the leper's healing, I believe, pictures a cleansing from sin. So I want to do two things this morning as we consider these verses. First of all, just to, to look at this wonderful and powerful narrative. And then at the same time, seek the deeper truth in which I think it, it gives to us about how Christ deals with all of us. We'll do so in five stages. The first, we see the request, according to verse 12, we read, While he was in one of the cities, that's Jesus in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, leprosy was, was commonly a nerve disease in which the nerves stop working and the extremities, the fingers, the toes, nose, and ears, they would grow numb. And therefore, because you have no feeling in your extremities, you would injure yourself not, and, and you'd be unaware that you've done so. You would perhaps burn yourself or scald your face with hot water or use a splintered hammer or bite your cheek or uh, forget to blink your eye. And as you would do so, you would actually destroy your own body. There will be a progressive loss of the extremities, fingers, toes. Many lepers lost their nose. Some will lose their entire feet. Leprosy continues in a smaller scale, even today in the developing world. And those who have leprosy, they're known that while they sleep, vermin will actually come into their homes and consume their extremities while they sleep and not unable to feel what's going on. 
the, the great and famous Christian doctor, Dr. Brand, who has spent a great deal of time working amongst lepers, he would uh, perform surgeries upon them, then have a post-operative procedure. He would send a cat home with them in order to keep the vermin out of the house while they slept and recovered. He himself would call leprosy a painless hell. Death would take you about 20 or 30 years as this terribly die by inches. You will moreover be often covered with massive open sores with a foul discharge. Your vocal cords would ulcerate. Your voice would grow hoarse and you would wheeze while you breathe. And as bad as all these physical symptoms sound about leprosy, it's really not a physical problem. No, it is a physical problem. But it's much more than a physical problem. In fact, the physical issues are the, the le- least of your troubles if you happen to be a leper. Leprosy is more a social disease. It is a spiritual disease. They were considered unclean, considered cursed by God. And like the untouchables in India today, rather than receiving compassion and mercy, they actually received animosity and hatred. In fact, one could not get near others if they were a leper. Not only were they filthy, uh, repulsive, they were contagious. We have ancient accounts of people who carry rocks in their pockets in case a leper got new close in order to drive them away. If a leper ever came close to someone, they would have to yell to them to let them know that you are now near. You would now live alone. So you know, the Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 13, the leper's person shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and cry out, unclean, unclean. He is unclean. He shall live alone. So you know two things about that passage. One, you've become separated from all your relationships, your family, your your friends. You have no contact with them anymore. And the second is that you need, now need to call out your identity. You need to call out now who you, who, who you now are. Can you imagine if perhaps you, you went to Harris Teeter this afternoon or Food Line and, and you walked down an aisle and you had announced, unclean, unclean, as people scurry away from you down the aisle to get as far away from you as they could. You see, they're not only sick. They've lost everything, their health, their family, their friends, their home, their career, their faith community. All they had left was shame, hatred, and pain. To make matters worse, there was no hope, no escape, no help, no cure. The ancient historian Josephus said of lepers as if they were, in effect, dead men. Dead men walking, we might say today. Which I think tells us why it's such a beautiful and powerful picture of sin. A picture of those who are apart from Christ. That sin has invaded us all throughout. And that we, because of our own actions, are unclean before God. And and that sin grows in us and destroys our relationships. And ultimately will lead to death, as the Bible tells us. And by the way, there is no human cure to sin. We are all utterly helpless to save ourselves apart from God working in our life. And it is this man in his leprosy that the Bible tells us in verse 12 came to Jesus. Which would have been shocking and scandalous. Luke says here in verse Verse 12, that there came a man full of leprosy. You see, no leper was allowed to approach anyone who was healthy or clean, let alone get as close to someone that they could actually reach out and touch him. You can almost picture Jesus, according to Luke, was in one of the cities. Therefore, he would have had a massive crowd around him. Hundreds, if not thousands of people by now are following Jesus. And and this crowd surrounding Jesus as he makes his way. And in the background, they would hear, unclean, unclean. And the crowd would begin to part, and a man would push his way through, 
Some would be horrified. Others would begin to curse at him. Others run away. Mothers would sweep up their children and clutch them in their arms. Perhaps some stones were flying at this point, and yet this man kept coming violating every social norm, every cultural law. He pushed his way forward to the point where he stood right before Jesus. But he did not stand for long. As you know, reading on in verse 12, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him. There he lays in the ground. Luke, a physician, explains that this man was full of leprosy. He is in advanced stage of this disease. His body is mutilated from head to toe. He is foul and rotting as he lies there before Jesus, begging him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Brothers and sisters, that is the language of faith. If you will, you can make me clean. He believes he is in the presence of the only one that can cure his issue, make him clean. He is in the presence of one of unparalleled and unknown power. What he wonders is not if Jesus is able to do this, but if he is willing to. Jesus, I know you can help me. Will you? Is his question. Will you? Luke tells us he is begging him. The tense explains to us that he is repeating this over and over again. I don't know if you could put yourself in this position. Imagine this scene in your mind that you could hear the quiver in his request or maybe see the tears in his eyes as this leper prostrate in a raspy voice repeating, Lord, if you're willing, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I would think we would do well to let this man be our teacher today. This is how one should approach Christ, is it not? Does he not show us how we come to Jesus humble, prostrate before him in a perfect posture to receive grace and mercy, believing believing that this is the only one who can change his life, who can make him whole, desperate, aware of his condition, sensing his great need? He said, God does not heal anyone who does not know of their disease, of their trouble, of their need. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle said long ago. The leper did not get dressed up in his finest clothes and try to hide the horrible sores and disfigurement that covered his body. He came to Jesus with all the ugliness of his disease and appealed for cleansing. Sometimes people think, I can't come to Jesus until I clean up some of my worst sins. Don't do that, he writes. Come to Jesus with all your foulness and oozing sores. Hold up in his sight the stumps of hands that have been eaten away by sin that he may make you whole. As we have seen in Luke's gospel, all you need is need. All you need to come to Christ is to know that you need him. And we see this leper truly understand that as we turn from the leper's cry to the Lord's reply, seeing secondly the remedy in verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. You see, rather than turning away from him like everybody else has, Jesus says to him, I am willing, I will 
be clean. And Luke tells us, and immediately the leprosy was gone. A sudden and complete healing opened sores immediately covered with baby soft skin. Flesh regenerated, nerves renewed. If you were there, you would have heard the crowd amazement as they watched this immediate healing before their eyes. The parallel account in Mark's gospel tells us what motivated Jesus to be willing, saying he being moved with pity reached out and touched the man saying, I will be clean. He was moved with pity. Jesus says, I will because I love you. I hate seeing you like this. And I will make you clean. You can see the compassion of Jesus here in this work. Not just simply in the fact that he was willing to heal him, but notice how he healed him. For Luke tells us he stretched out his hand and touched him. He did not thrust his hands in his pockets or put his hands behind his back, but he actually reached out. He, we know he, he didn't have to. And the next story we'll consider God willing next time is that Jesus doesn't need to touch anyone to heal them. There's no need to touch this man. He touches him not because his body needs it. He touches him because his soul needs it. This is a man who has been starved for love, for someone to reach out and to to lay a hand upon him. He is cleansing him. He is restoring him. Who who knows the last time this man has been touched in his advanced stage of leprosy? Has it been 10 years? Has it been 20 years? Has it been 25 years? This husband who once knew the kiss of his wife, a father who once knew the embrace of his children, has not touched a single soul for decades. In fact, he's not only used to people running from him, he's used to, to people's greatest fear was that he might actually touch them. And Jesus reaches down and lays a hand upon his head, his diseased foul head. This, this leper, he, he touches him. In fact, if you would touch a leper, you would risk being defiled yourself, wouldn't you? Before the crowd was amazed at his healing, I trust they gasped in horror as Jesus slowly reached out and placed a hand upon him. And you once again picture this man of massive rotting flesh, his heart pounding, terrified that the stones may be coming soon, desperate, face in the dirt, begging Jesus, please make me clean. And a loving hand rests upon his head and a powerful word is spoken. I am willing, be clean, and the man is made whole. I'm excited about this passage because this is exactly what has happened to me. And this is what has happened to you, Christian. Has Christ not made you whole? Have you not been carried away in your sin? Have you, has he not taken your foul and rotty sin and transgression and, and rebellion against him and made you whole and pure? Has he not reached out and touched you and immediately made you fit before God? Shackled by a heavy burden beneath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Yes, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me, and he has made me whole. That is your story, is it not? That is the story of all who have met Christ and they have been cleansed by Christ and been made fit by Christ. I want you to understand, if you are here today and you are not right before God, Christ is willing to cleanse you. 
He is willing to reach down and lay a hand upon you and take all of your foulness away, all of your uncleanness away, all of your sin away. If you come to Him and you ask Him, are you willing to save me? He will say to you emphatically, I am willing. Be saved. He will save you. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, friend, I I know there are some here who come week after week, and you walk out these doors week after week unreconciled to the God who made you. And I trust there may be one or two today who has come visiting, perhaps, separated from God, living a wayward life, I want you to understand that Christ is willing to take all your sin upon Himself. He is willing to extend you grace, forgiveness, and mercy right now. He will make you clean right now. And if you walk out these doors today unclean before God, if you walk out these doors today lost, separated from God, it is not because your God is unwilling to save you. It is because you are unwilling to be saved. He will save you this instant if you will call out to Him. Lord Jesus, I believe. Save me. He has done this for me. He has done this for so many in this room. He has saved us. But of course, when we look at this text, we, the question that rises, well, what about not just spiritual sickness? What not about sin? But what about actual sickness? What about actual suffering? And you, of course, are, are familiar with suffering, aren't you? You're familiar with sickness. I read as I prepared for this message that one out of two Americans will get cancer. Isn't that extraordinary? 50% of Americans will end up with some kind of cancer. Some of you know that. Some of you have had it. Some of you have it right now. Some of you probably have it right now and don't even know it. It may be me. And if it's not cancer, right? It's a stroke or heart disease or dementia or, or diabetes or something else. Right? We, we all know about suffering and sickness. And the question, I think, rises when we look in a passage like this, is God still heal? Does God still heal people? Which I would say unequivocally to you, absolutely he does. There's no doubt in my mind. Jesus healed and Jesus continues to heal. And therefore, you and I should pray for healing as we often do, and, and sometimes when the elders are called upon, we anoint with oil, as James 5 tells us, and lay on hands and pray for healing. And sometimes God heals through a miracle. Well, not often. Often He heals through medicine, which I believe to be a great and absolute gift from God. The leper here doesn't doubt his ability. If you're sick, please never doubt the ability of God to heal you. He's absolutely able to heal you. But the question I think that he raises, is he willing? Is it God's will that you be healed? And the answer to that question I think is far more difficult. Sometimes it is. And yet sometimes it's not. Just because God has the power does not mean he's always willing. Which then raises another question, well, why not? Because you think, if I had the power, and I saw someone sick, I would heal every single person I could. So why is it that God, who has the power to heal, and yet at times chooses not to? You see, in the leper, he was willing. But we know Paul, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, prayed three times, God, will you heal me? God said, no, I'm not going to. You know why? He said, i got something better planned for you. And so I don't know all the intricacies and all the details as to why God doesn't heal particular people at particular times. But for the Christian, I think we could always generally answer the same way. That God chooses not to heal. When He chooses not to heal, He chooses not to heal because He has something better planned. 
He's going to do something better than healing. He says to Paul, I'm not, I'm not going to heal you because I want you to rely upon me. I need you to learn to trust in me. And it is better than healing. As Michael Wilcox once wrote, I could, of course, give you immediate relief, but I would rather take the opportunity to do something far more reaching, which will be to your greater benefit in the long run. You will find it more painful, and you may not understand what I am doing because I may be treating disorders of which you, you yourself are unaware And so, Christian, if God does not heal you right away, or if he does not heal you ever, it is because he has something better planned for you. Sickness helps us to trust God. It helps us, helps this world's grasp to grow weak upon us, helps us to yearn for heaven, helps us to change our priorities. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's not. It's hard. See, these are some of the hardest lessons you'll ever learn. But I believe by faith it is always for our good. I appreciate the ministry of James Montgomery Boyce, the famous pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, who shared with his congregation when he was diagnosed with cancer. They asked him, well, pastor, how can we pray for you? He got up and his after, soon after his diagnosis said, should you pray for a miracle? Well, you are free to do that, of course. But my general impression is that God, who is able to do miracles, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare. Above all then, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying Himself in history, and you say, where in all the history has God most glorified Himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though He could have, but He didn't do that. And yet, that's where God is most glorified. He continued and said, God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It is not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. No, my friends, God is good. And everything he does is good. And so believing that God could heal and trusting in God, whatever happened, James Montgomery Boyce died exactly eight weeks after he shared that with his congregation. And then he was healed. Permanently forever because all healing in this life is always temporary because we're all going to die we'll all encounter something in which we are not healed from this leper got sick again and that time there was no healing and he died but someday for those who are in christ we will enter a place in which there will be no more no more death or no more mourning or no more crying or no more pain forever And so sometimes we get healed in this life, but all Christians get healed permanently in the life to come. No more sickness or weariness or diminishment or death or destruction or tears. That's where we're headed because of Jesus. And so I want to remind you today, as we want to be healthy, that this life is short, eternity is long, and we are not yet home. We are going home one day when Christ comes for us or he calls us and there we shall be healed forever. May we long for that healing above all else. And yet this man received this healing in which Jesus then gave him this instruction as we turn to thirdly and quickly the ritual. It's interesting for Christ says in verse 14, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so Jesus tells this man to, to go to the priest who was in this day kind of a health inspector. 
to have this cleansing verified in order that he might be welcomed back into the community of faith. You can read about it in Leviticus 14. It is amazing, incredibly detailed. I just want to give you the highlights as to what this would be like. It would be an eight-day kind of celebration on the rare occasion when someone was delivered from leprosy. The priest would meet this man outside the, the village or the town in order to verify his healing. And once he saw no more signs of leprosy, there would be two birds offered. The first bird would be killed over a clay pot so that none of the blood was lost. The second bird would then be dipped into the blood of the first bird, and he would take that second bird and sprinkle the man with the blood seven times, pronouncing him to be clean. When the ceremony was over, the the second bird would then be let go, and he would fly away to his freedom. The picture is that the death of the first bird is the death of the leper. That man no longer exists. And now there is a new man, a, a live man, a free man. And yet that man was freed only through the sacrifice of another, through the blood. The man would then wash his clothes, shave off all of his hair. Remember, his hair has been unkept. He has not cut his hair from the day he was diagnosed with leprosy. He would then go home, and yet he would have to live outside the house for the next seven days. On the seventh day, he would shave himself again, his head, his eyebrows, even his his beard. He He would bathe, and his skin would be like a newborn baby as he's ready to enter life all over again. On the eighth day, he would offer three unblemished lambs. The priest would take the blood of the first and smear it on his right earlobe. Take the blood of the second and put it on his right thumb. Take the blood of the third and put it on his right toe, signifying that this man now belongs to God, that he will listen to God's voice, that he will work for God's glory, and that he will walk in God's way. Can you imagine the celebration that this man, as he returns home, this man who has been sick for so long, as he comes to his wife, who he's not held in, in years, and he's able to snuggle up next to her, go to his children and, and pick them up in his arms and sit down and, and eat with them or, or play with them. Can you imagine the feasting and the singing and, and the uh, going long into the night? Can you imagine them praising God? Can you imagine them praising Jesus for what he had done? What a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us. And yet Christ not only tells him to go and verify that this cleansing has happened, it's interesting, he tells him two things, doesn't he? Verse 14, he begins by charging him to tell no one. He says, listen, don't talk to anyone about this. He, he, he wants uh, time and space to show the people who the real, who, what kind of Messiah he is. He, he wants people to not look at him as a miracle worker. He doesn't want people to come to him just because they get things from him. And that's how we want our relationships, right? We don't want our spouse or our children or our friends to come to us because we we pay out that we give them good things we want them to want us for who we are this is who christ wants and he wants to explain who he is that people will come to him because they love him and so don't tell anyone which leads us to fourthly the response look in verse 15 but now even more the report about him went abroad and a great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And so Luke tells us now even more crowds were gathering together, but he doesn't tell us why. If you look in Mark's parallel account in Mark chapter 1, we, we see that this man doesn't obey Jesus at all. As soon as he's cleansed, he goes out and he tells every single person what has happened to him. He is no longer yelling as he walks up to people, unclean, unclean. He is running around shouting, I'm clean, I'm clean, as he runs up and tells people what Christ has done. And though it's disobedient, we can kind of understand his enthusiasm. And I think in, in many ways, he challenges me because he is told not to tell and he can't help but tell everyone. And you and I are told to tell. And how often do we keep our tongues still and our mouth closed? 
Mark tells us that because of this man's enthusiasm, Jesus can no longer enter into towns. It became hard to move around. Uh, and, and news spread about him. In fact, news became so prominent about Jesus at this event. Remember that he's up in Galilee at this time. That actually spread to the south, the urban south, to Jerusalem and Judea. And reports began to spread about Jesus, which is why we will see the Jewish leadership in the next event in Luke's gospel. They have come up to Galilee to check on Jesus. Well, lastly, consider the retreat here in verse 16, explaining what Jesus did after these events took place, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And we've seen this, this verse or similar verses like this already a couple times in our study of Luke's gospel. As Jesus' ministry picks up and his crowds are gathered, Jesus is always running away to hide. Right? He's always trying to get away from people. Not because he doesn't want to be around people, but he wants to be with his God. And so he'll withdraw many times to these desolate places. The word desolate places is the exact same word that was used in Luke 4 to describe the wilderness where Jesus was tempted. It's an uninhabitable place, and he will withdraw to these places where other people cannot find him. And so we learn from this, don't we? That Christ is not constantly working, that he is spending time alone with his Father. He's turning off the television. He's putting down the cell phone. He's logging off. Facebook and Twitter and texting. And he's going to be away with God. We'll find out later in Luke's gospel that when Jesus heals, he actually feels power go out of him. It's draining. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, all this ministry is is difficult. And so he had to flee to get away and be alone with God, that he might be refreshed, that he might be renewed. Which I think gives us an incredible example to follow, doesn't it? Should we not be more like Jesus in this? The busier that Jesus gets, the the more he prays, the the, the more he runs and to hide to be with his father. And we've already considered this, I think back in Luke chapter 4, but I think it bears repeating. That when your life, when things get busy, when everyone wants you and and you can solve all their problems, you can meet all their needs and and everything's exciting and, and you're the best, what is the thing that we let get squeezed out of our life? Is it not prayer? Is it our time with our Father? It's like, I'm too busy for that. Please understand that Jesus Christ will change the course of history. He will change people's lives forever. And yet he thought prayer with God too important to neglect. He would not walk away from it. There was a man who followed Christ's example in the early 1800s. A pastor by the name Robert Murray McShane. He would tell other pastors... To, quote, preach to your people as if you were on the brink of eternity. I kind of like that. And he would preach very powerfully. And yet McShane would only preach for five years. As he died at age 29 from typhus. And yet in those five years he would see 700 people surrender their life to King Jesus. His ministry would have a massive impact on Scotland decades after, in fact, continues to do so, as even seminarians today study his ministry. It was a handful of years after McShane died that another Scottish pastor was concerned that his ministry was producing so little fruit. And so he decided out of desperation to visit McShane's old church, and he found an old custodian there, and he, and he asked him if he knew uh, Pastor McShane, and the, the man said he did, and, and he asked him, do, do you know why his ministry was so powerful? Why was his ministry so successful? And the old man said, follow me. And he took this, this, this young pastor to McShane's old study, and he said, sit down there at the desk. And, and the pastor did, and he said, now, now put your elbows on, on the table. 
And the young pastor did so. The old man said, yes, that's the way Pastor McShane used to do it. Now put your hand in your face. And the visitor obeyed. Now let tears run down your cheeks. That was what McShane used to do. A contemporary of McShane, J.C. Ryle, asked, why is there so much religious working and yet so little result in positive conversions to God? So many sermons and so few souls saved, so much machinery and so little effort produced, so much running hither and thither, and yet so few brought to Christ. Why is all this? The reply is short and simple. There is not enough private prayer. The cause of Christ does not need less working, but it does need among the workers more praying. Let us each examine ourselves, therefore, and amend our ways. The most successful workmen in the Lord's vineyard are those who are like their master, often and much upon their knees. I have been wondering in recent months what God would do through the community of Hamilton Baptist Church if we as a people begin to cry out to him in great earnestness that we would impact Loudoun County and this world, that we would become desperate, that tears would come down our face, that we would beg God for the great privilege to lead people to Christ. Our goal, of course, is not that we'd have more people sit in this building. That becomes less and less important to me as I, as I pastor. But that lives would change. Families would be reconciled. People be transformed. The lost will be brought in. I wonder, my brothers and sisters, if you would examine your own life, your own desperation for God to work, your own commitment to crying out for Him in prayer, as our Lord so clearly teaches, that we would seek our power, not from our own abilities and skills, but from God Himself. We will gather this Thursday night to do just that. The National Day of Prayer, along with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around this country. Perhaps you could join us. Perhaps I, you may not even know that people are praying right now. Uh, we have a prayer room staffed every Sunday while the sermon is delivered. There are people who are praying on a rotation. Perhaps you could commit. It's just a very small step to getting on that rotation. You could contact the church office and we could um, involve you in this, I think, very important prayer ministry. And we see Christ teach us in his example to pray. That's not the only example Christ gives us as we see that, that, that he's out there ministering to people. He, he's not withdrawn within the building walls, but he's out in his community helping. And of course, we can't cleanse leper, but, but we can go out and touch them, can't we? We can, we can have compassion on the hopeless and the hurting. I think we are so careful here about our doctrine and making sure everything's right. And that's where my leaning is, to be quite honest with you. And that's good, and we shouldn't neglect that. But I, I, I wonder if we should lay our hands on some rotting flesh. I wonder if we should see how we as a church could stop meeting at all these separate times within this building and start going out in our community and finding opportunities to find hurting people. Not that we adopt new programs, but that we have eyes to see. Where are the needs in our community? How has God led us to these needs? And how may we help? This is what the church used to do. When the church first began to grow in the first, second, third centuries, Smallpox would come through the Roman cities and ravage the people. And at and, and times, a quarter of the city's population would die, maybe even a third of the population. And these pagans soon realized that if someone is sick and you get close to them, you might get sick too. And so they begin to cast people out of their homes. The common practice, if someone was sick in your home, you kicked them to the street, even if they were your family member. Well, almost immediately as soon as the church was formed, the church would walk through the streets and find the sick 
and they would bring them back into their homes. They would care for those diseased and ill. Were they better people? No. They've just been changed by Christ. Their eternity has been secured. And now they were free to love, free to sacrifice. And as they did, the church began to grow. The Bible says the favor of all men were upon it as they followed Christ's example. Well, perhaps we not only need to follow Christ's example, perhaps our last point of application today is to receive Christ's cleansing. In fact, there's probably some here that don't need to follow Christ's example. You don't need to worry about ministering to people. Don't even need to worry about a life of prayer. You need to receive Christ's cleansing. As, as we, we know, as even that story I just mentioned tells us that when you're close to sick people, you get sick, right? Contamination happens through proximity. So if you're healthy and you come close to someone who's sick, what happens? The unhealthy make the sick unhealthy, right? The, a healthy person being near a, a sick person doesn't make the sick person healthy. It goes the opposite way. The sick makes the unhealthy sick. And religion has always taught us that works spiritually the same way. It works the same way morally. That, that if, if you want to be pure, you want to be fit before God, you stay away from the stained and the tainted. And if you hang out with people who are soiled and rotten, you're going to become soiled and rotten too. In other words, the uncleanness becomes contagious. We see this in the Old Testament. You have something clean and something unclean, and they come in contact. The unclean thing makes the clean also unfit. It makes it unclean. And then you have all these rituals in order to restore the clean, the cleanliness. How can you get yourself back to God? How can you get yourself back to to being fit before God. And this is how all religion works. Even here in the story, Jesus encounters this leper and as soon as he touches him and, and, and heals him, he tells him, go to the priest, right? And, and go through the rituals. Certify your cleanliness. But what's amazing here is that Jesus doesn't do the same. Right? By all the laws, now Jesus is unclean. He has to go and and offer the sacrifices and do the washings. And yet we don't find him saying, whoops, now I'm unclean. Now I'm unfit before God. It's reversed for the first time ever. The cleanliness, the fitness, the righteousness has become contagious. Being near him makes the sick healthy, makes the unclean clean. It's as if Christ is saying, not only can you not make me unfit before God, but no matter how defiled or stained or tainted you are, I can make you right before Him. And I wonder if there are things in your life you just feel dirty about. Maybe something you did last night or something you did 30 years ago. You just can't shake this feeling of filth. I wonder if there's something that's been done to you and and it's no fault of your own. And yet it's there. And if you just pause for a moment, it just surfaces and you feel dirty. You feel unclean. Jesus is saying to you here, I don't care what you have done. I don't care what has been done to you. I don't care how ashamed you feel. The moment I touch you, you become clean forever. You become perfect. You become righteous. My cleanness becomes your cleanness. My fitness becomes your fitness. My righteousness becomes your righteousness. Which raises the question, how? I mean, how can he offer that to us? How can he make that kind of claim? How can he just change everything? Well, it's because he will take your uncleanness upon himself.
he will become the leper. He will be ostracized and go out to the garbage dump and be considered cursed by God. He will take our filth and our sin and it will be taken to the cross and it will be placed upon Jesus. For God made him who knew no sin that he might become sin for us so that you can become the righteousness of God. He's paid for it. You see, if Jesus is just another religious teacher, he would show up and say to you, all right, you want to be clean? You have to do this and this and this and this and do this over here, and then you can be fit from by, by God. But Jesus does not do that. He just shows up and he just makes us fit. We need to come to him and he will make us clean, just like he did with this leper, knowing our sin, knowing our disease, begging for forgiveness, and he will never turn from you. I don't care if everyone in your life has ever always turned from you. Jesus will never turn from the repentant. No matter what you have done, he will reach out and take all your sin upon himself. This very moment, I promise you, by the authority of God's word, this very instant, all you have done, all you will ever do, he will take it to Calvary's cross and pay for it all if you will bow your knee to King Jesus. He did it through the cross. Let's celebrate that work. Let's rejoice today, Christian, in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that makes us fit before him. We'll do it through this meal that is set before us as Christ has instructed us to do in remembrance of him. That we would remember his work. And as the elements are passed and you hold for us all to eat and drink together, Perhaps you can rejoice in today, my brothers and sisters, that you are fit before God. You are clean before God because of Jesus' work. And that might feed your soul. This would be a soul feast today. We would nourish upon our righteousness purchased by Jesus. But before we do, we would like to give all an opportunity to, to turn over any sin in their life. This is a meal for sinners, but we ought not to come to it lazily haphazardly. We need to come asking God to help us overcome the sin in our lives. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. You see, we don't examine ourselves so that we turn away from the meal. We examine ourselves so that we can eat the meal knowing that what Christ has done for us. And so in a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to pray silently. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, as I mentioned, we're glad that you're here, but we would like you to honor us by not participating in this meal. And the Bible says this is a meal for Christians who have given their life to Christ. And so as the plates are passed by in a moment, if you will just quietly and discreetly pass them on to your neighbor and not participate, uh, we would certainly appreciate that. And for us Christians, let us go to our Lord, rejoicing in His grace and repenting of sin. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. You loved us first. 
And it's out of your love for us that you sent your son to die for us. And so we not only celebrate and remember the work of Christ, but we rejoice in the love of our Father. And we believe you do not love us because Christ died for us, but you love us and therefore Christ died for us. Thank you for loving us. Loving us more than we'll ever fully understand. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience. And thank you for your compassion upon us. May it feed our souls today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The deacons will now come forward, please.